a storm. Intimate moment. A very intimate moment. I just asked him to turn me on. <laughs> and he did. Thank you. Is that okay? Not too loud? Hey, it's good to be back. Good to be back with the people at Mount Clear. Some very familiar faces here. Very familiar. Some of them have been around for a long time. I've known for quite a while. But you know what? Regardless of how long you know people, sometimes you don't really know them. This morning I want to talk about something that's very close to my heart. And I'm going to actually talk about me. Right? I know a lot of you, and I know a lot about a lot of you. But I'm not going to talk about you. Right? Because that would be breaching confidentiality. Thank you. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> no, seriously. I'm going to talk about me because this has been my journey. Yeah, right? Living with mental health issues as a Christian. It's not something that I've always been comfortable to talk about. In fact, it was probably only about 10 years that I started to own the fact that I needed to talk about it. In fact, I remember when I was lecturing at Kingsley College, someone asked me one day when I was lecturing in sexual abuse, you know so much about it, it's almost like you've been abused. And I said, no, never been abused. Now that wasn't because I was lying, I'll be honest. Because at that point, in 1995, I had no memory of having been abused. In 1997, I was sitting with a client and he was telling me about a dream he was having and my body started to convulse. And I had to leave the room and I went to the bathroom and threw up. I couldn't continue the session. My colleague down the hall heard me run into the bathroom and come and said, are you okay? And I looked at her and she said, oh my God, you're not okay. I don't know what she saw, but she knew I wasn't okay. So she went and dealt with my client and asked him to go and we'll make another appointment. And she said to me, what's going on? And I said, I have no idea. And I honestly didn't. I'd phased out and my body had taken over. It wasn't quite a dissociation, but it was really impacting. I then had to get in the car and drive back to Ballarat from my office, it was in my office in Geelong. And I rang my supervisor before I left and said, listen, I don't know if you've got any time, but this is what's happened. He said, oh, right, okay. Yeah, I'll make time. So I drove back to Ballarat and I spent three hours with him when I finally got in to see him. And we unpacked it and he said, now, you need to go speak to someone about this. So I did. So over the next 12 months I went twice a week. I was very dedicated. And I spent time, took a whole, used to take a whole day and travel on the train down to Melbourne to see this Christian psychologist who was specialised in trauma and helped me work through it. 
but also he helped me recognise there's a whole lot of other stuff that had gone on in my life prior to the abuses that were adding to the impact of the abuse. And that since I got married, there was a whole lot of other stuff that had happened that was impacting it. So what I want to do, if you can just show the next slide, please. Just have a read through that. I'm not going to go through it individually, but that's some of the things that I've experienced in my life. And still, as a result of those things, sometimes have to manage. Now, I need to let you know here, I have taken medication. I'm not on medication now. I have taken medication on two stints for four years at a time. I have spent time in a psychiatric institution. wasn't pleasant. I didn't like it, I didn't want to be there, but I needed to be. The last time I spent time in hospital, which is not for my mental health, but because of chronic pain, was only in 2018. On average, I'm there twice a year for something. I have a birth defect that causes me to have constant bladder infections. They tried to fix it with surgery, but damaged the valve and they couldn't do anything with it. So short of getting a bag, which I don't particularly want to do, I've used catheters over the years, it's not very pleasant either, right? Especially when you're travelling on a train and you have to go into a public toilet, you know, and all the cubicles are full, and you've got to pull out your tube and take your peg off and... Ladies, shut your ears for a sec. You know, man, when you go in your standard a cubicle and everybody looks like this, you should see them when you pull a tube out and like this. <laughs> At the start, it was embarrassing. But after a while, I went back to my 12 years of age. You know, whoo, I can do it all. <laughs> Sorry. I've learned to laugh at myself and my situation many times. If I didn't, I'd probably cry. Okay? But I want to talk about this because as a professional, I see people from all walks of life. Christians, I mean, only just, under, just over 40% of my clientele come from Christian or faith Christian faith background. The rest of them mixed of anything, right? Some of them are married, some of them aren't, some of them are in one relationship, some of them are in all sorts of relationships. Some of them know who they are, what they are, what gender they work from, some of them don't. Some of them are confused, some of them don't want to be who they are, they want to be someone else. But the one thing I've known, regardless of who it is or what kind of person steps into my room, including their bank account and their finances, they all can struggle with mental health issues. And one thing I do know about mental health issues when people struggle with them, along comes with that this thing called... Shame. Did you hear that? Shame. Shame. 
There's a stigma about having some kind of mental health issue. And I want to talk about this in, not, not just this church, in a church, because, and I want to say this respectfully and lovingly, some of the biggest offenders are Christians. Right? And some of the most lovely, caring people I know are pastors. Right? But I know that the training that pastors get doesn't equip them necessarily for dealing with mental health issues. Right? From a generalist pastoral care perspective, they're okay. Some are better than others. But generally, they're not able to see it. They're not able to pick it. They're not sure what to do. And when they do do the things that they normally do, sometimes it actually complicates how the other person feels. Right? I've been on the receiving end of that. Okay, let's look at some statistics. Right? And these are just released this year in July. The ABS released some stats on the wellness study they did, 2020-2021, right? And this is regardless of COVID, right? So this wasn't taking into account COVID because this is consistent with what they've uncovered in past years. Two in five Australians, two out of five, right? Just 43%, almost 44% of people aged between 16 and 85, I'm still in that category, 85, right, have struggled with mental health disorder at some time in their life. How many people we've got here this morning? 50? Two in five, so 20 of you. 20 of us have struggled with a mental health disorder in our lifetime. And if you haven't yet, <laughs> hello, <laughs> right? That's not a threat, right? One in five have had a 12-month struggle with a mental health disorder. That's 10 of us, right? Almost two in five people aged 16 to 24 have had a 12-month struggle with it. 16 to 24. Anxiety is the most common. Right? Yeah, I'm not sure what I've got. Oh, there we go. We've got it up there. Anxiety is the most, most common. And as you can see from that, anxiety disorders comes, there's agoraphobia, there's generalised anxiety, there's social anxiety or social phobias, there's obsessive-compulsive disorders, there's hoarding. There's all sorts of things. Post-traumatic stress comes under anxiety. And then you've got affective disorders, that is, disorders that affect the mood, the affect, the emotional status of someone. There's a whole gamut of them, but depression, dysthymia, bipolar, schizoaffective disorder. There's a whole stack of them, right? And then you've got substance disorders, and the most common one of those is alcohol problems. When I say alcohol problems, I'm talking about in this category where people drink to harmful levels. 
when you get called to an emergency department, you've got a 14-year-old girl that for the fourth night in a row has been brought in by an ambulance, catatonic. You've got to ask yourself, what's going on here? Right? I know a lot of 14-year-olds. Most of them don't drink like that. In fact, most of them don't drink. Right? The ones that do, they don't drink like that. I know a lot of adults who drink. And most of the adults I know that drink don't drink like that. Right? So there's harmful levels of drinking. But then there's also alcoholics who don't necessarily now drink harmful levels, but who cannot leave it alone. You know, the likes of, by 10 o'clock in the morning, they've finished their first half bottle of scotch. Right? And you and I standing talking to them would have no idea apart from the vapour and odour that comes from around them. Right? They function quite normally. They have family members like that. My father was like that. And then of course there's drugs, substance abuses, where people... And there's all sorts around. When I was growing up as a teenager, there was things called dope, and occasionally we come across these other things called purple hearts. But that was about it, right? And then the really wacky dudes, you know, they used to get into the woo LSD. Never even saw that in my lifetime, right? But nowadays, it is everywhere. And I'm so grateful I'm not raising my kids today. I feel for parents who do. I mean, I've got four children and two foster children with children. So I've got 16 of my own grandchildren plus three others. And I see the parents with them and I, I hear the parents' anguish about what goes on in their schools. Right? And the struggle they have. So this is a big issue. But why should we be interested in it? Next slide, please. Why should we be interested in it? Because Jesus was. Jesus' ministry was about preaching, teaching and hearing. So if you look at that just from a basic perspective and a logic perspective, a third of Jesus' ministry was spent towards healing people. And some of that would have been mental health issues. Right? Jesus said in Luke, I've come to minister to those who are ill. God said in the greatest commandment of all that he wants us to learn how to love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and all our strength, with our physicality. Now when you read that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it reads like this. This is... My paraphrase. God's saying to the Hebrew people, how can I express this any other way? Everything I've ever done, everything I've ever felt, everything I've ever thought, everything I've ever planned, I've done it for you. I've loved you with everything. And I want you to love me with everything. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then I want you to go and love your neighbour with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. 
And I want you to love yourself. Heart, soul, mind and strength. So go and love as I love. Do we? Because my experience has been, and I'm being honest here, that too often, not just in churches, but in workplaces, in families, in social settings, if someone turns up that is quite clearly got some kind of mental problem, they get ostracised. Well, I used to have an office right in the middle of Melbourne, Melbourne Central. There was people begging on the street everywhere. And I mean everywhere, until they cleaned it up with the com games and then they, I don't know where they went. But it was no one around. I missed having coffee with them. I would always walk out of my office. One of the things I do even here in Ballarat when I, in between sessions when I'm able to get around, when I'm able to walk, my back's been a bit crooked this week, so I haven't done it as much. But I go out for a walk in between sessions. I have a half hour break between, as long as I don't go overtime, which sometimes happens. But I'll go for a walk, right? And I love to catch up. And you see people, even here in the Mall, right? During the you know, mandated period where people couldn't go and get a coffee if they weren't vaccinated. I would often see people walking along and it. They'd look, they'd be standing back at the cafe like this, and they knew they couldn't go and get it. So I'd say to them, hey, go and sit down over there, what do you want? And I'd go and buy them a coffee, and I'd come back and sit down with them. I even had one cafe owner come out and said, you can't do that. And I said, why not? And he said, because you're not supposed to. I said, no, he's not supposed to come in there without a mask or without a vaccine. I mean, there's no rule or mandate that says I can't love him and go and give him a coffee and sit with him. He said, well, is that what you call it? You're an idiot. I said, yeah, well, I'm an idiot. Okay. So now when I go into his cafe, he says, oh, here's the idiot. Come on in. Come and sit down. To me, I take that as a, a label of pride. Right? What am I saying here? What I'm saying is we need to understand Two in five? That's 20 of us here at some time in our families, workplaces or otherwise have felt that kind of judgement or ostracisation. It's not fun. And we're going to turn it around. Because if we've got two in five people out there in our society that want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet they don't feel the love, oh, hello, it's a bit of a... You know, the balance sheet's a bit lacking. Right? So this morning I want to quickly go through five myths about mental health. But then also I want to leave you with four encouragements from the Word of God. Right? The first first myth is this. Mental illness doesn't exist. It's just a spiritual problem. Yeah, you'd be surprised how many people that I'm dealing with that I have to go speak to their elders or their pastors or their priests or their whatever because that's their attitude. Let me give you a bit of a history lesson here. 
the ancient Greeks used to believe that anyone who had so-called mental illness, they didn't call it that, but they recognised what it was, was demonic. There were spirits in it. They had to be around here somewhere. Well, let's just clean the whole place. But they sort of didn't do it spiritually. They used to do things like they did in England, right? They'd hang people upside down with their mouth gag and put them in a river and keep dunking them. And then they'd eventually put them under for some exorbitant length of time. And if they were still alive after they come up, after 10 minutes, then, hey, they never had a spirit in them. Well, it solved their problem. They didn't have to deal with the person anymore, right? And so that was an easy fix. And then, of course, along comes St. Augustine. Now, he had some good things that he added to our history of theologies and all that sort of stuff. But one of the things he didn't do very well was he didn't deal with people who were ill, physically or mentally. Because he believed, and he used to tell people, that's God punishing you. Whoa. I'm just going to leave that because I'm going to come back to that a little bit later on. Okay? Then in the 17th and 18th century, the philosophers decided that the way to fix this illness, we've got to give them some logic. It's faulty thinking, that's what it is. They didn't think like that, they wouldn't feel like that. Now, hey, hang on, that sounds familiar. What's the CBT? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we have some of that around today. And to some point, that can be helpful because let's be honest, having a positive mindset can be helpful. But having a positive mindset doesn't heal a mental health disorder. Right? In our 21st century society, we have a much more robust picture of what mental health is. I mean, some people hang up crystals. Some people use salt. And I'm not saying those things mightn't help those people, right? Because again, that's a mindset thing, so that's just sort of faulty thinking. Right? So I'm not saying it doesn't help to some degree. But we've got to be careful that we can't recognize, we're not aware where some of this thinking comes from. And it's not, by, it's not based on biblical principles. The truth is, mental illness is real and it impacts us physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. Right? So it's no good just focusing on the mental part and saying, oh, it'll fix the whole lot. Because it doesn't. Right? Second myth. Mental illness is a sign of a weak faith. No. I can't think of anyone in the New Testament who had a greater faith, I think, than the Apostle Paul. And he had this ailment, this thorn in the flesh that never left him. And he pleaded, and he pleaded, you get my, get my gist? 
You look at some of the prophets in the Old Testament. They struggled. Poor Jonah, he wanted to kill himself. Elijah went and hid in a cave because he was so shamed that God let him down. Hang on, you just won the big God contest. How did God let you down? He got depressed and he went and hid in the cave. And he wanted God to turn up and God did turn up, but not in the wind or the thunder or the lightning. Just in that still, small voice. God turned up. Often scripture is misrepresented as well. Take for instance this verse here in Psalm 30 verse 11. Mel referred to it before about David praising God because he turned his mourning into dancing. That's not mental illness. You know what I did before I prepared for this? I thought I'm going to go and look at my pastoral care books and look at how many times that verse is used to, to be advised to be quoted to someone with mental health or depression. Every one I opened, all six of them. We need to be careful. That's not about mental, illness, mental health. That's about grief. Yeah. Grief is not an illness. Yeah. I was impressed by something the Prime Minister said the other day. Grief is the cost of loving. Right? And I had people come in and after 12 months since their husband passed away, they go, I'm still feeling it. Why am I still feeling like this? I don't want to feel like this. Well, I could just change your thinking. Right? Just stop. Just don't love the person anymore. Like, Come on. Look, our queen lost her husband just on, what was it, 12 months ago? No, April. Was it this year? Was it this year? Sorry? 17 months, was it? Yeah. Well, 17 months, and she's been with him for almost 70 years, right? So, how, do you understand what happens when someone dies? We have this chemical in our system called oxytocin. And it starts in our brains when we attach to our mother at birth and then to our father and then to other siblings and other people around us. And in our mind, in our brain, and that brain's a mechanism, but in our storage cabinet somewhere in the brain, in the mind, there's a dose of oxytocin for each person we meet. Right? And when we love someone deeply for so long, it's quite large. But the moment we hear that that... We don't have to be in the room with them, but the moment we hear that that person has passed, so we can be here in Australia, and all of a sudden, that oxytocin stops. And there's a big hole. We feel it. That's a chemical reaction. That's grief. And that's normal. My mum passed away 12 months ago on the 1st of September. She used to have sitting on a mantelpiece 
right beside her bed in the home where she was, a little figurine of Queen Elizabeth with one of those little waving hands. You know, the, sun sh- the more the sun shone, the more it waved. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was sort of went around. It didn't go back and forth. It sort of went around. It was fascinating, right? When we were packing things up, one of my sisters said, I want that. So we're very carefully putting it in some boxes with tissues and that sort of thing. And I sent it over to her when it got over there. She said, Mike, the hand's broken. <sighs> it's not the same thing when it's just sitting there going like that. <laughs> You're right, it wasn't. No. But it had, you know what was unique about it? It had that beautiful smile. You know, Ross was saying about the longevity of the Queen's expression of, we call it, I call it faith, right? Yeah. Right? Lived it very simply but very out there and practically. And it showed on her face, even just three days ago. Right? Nothing was ever too much bother for her. And that's why my mum loved her. Because my mum said, I remember when she finished Bible college, you know, she went back because I didn't want I didn't go to Bible college early enough, so she went. And then I thought, oh maybe I'd better go. Right, so I did. <laughs> I said to her, When she come who who do you model your life after, Mum? And I was expecting some big, deep theological answer. You know? And she said, well, there's only one woman in my life that I've ever looked at and thought, yeah, I want to be like her. And when she told me, I, I was staggered. Because my dad, he had Darwin books all over the place. Socialist, communist books. He definitely wasn't a royalist. Right? Not a monarchist. He wasn't even a Republican. He was that other business. You know? So my mum never talked about all that stuff. But then when she was in her late 40s and she's telling me this, I thought, well, that makes sense. That's why you never argued with him because <laughs> you weren't going to win anything anyway. right? But you see, this isn't about faith, mental health. Right? When we have that attitude, it discourages people. It's no more a weak faith to have mental illness than what it is to have weak faith to get a broken arm. Okay? So the third myth. Let's call a prayer meeting. We'll pray it away. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't pray. After I had my fall, I had a man who was on, um, I had a lot of trouble years later, and a man who was a senior pastor at um, Albert Street AOG at the time, Pastor John Healy, I was in hospital and he said, Mike, I'm coming up and I'm going to bring a group and we're going to pray over you. And I was doped out on morphine, I yeah, I go, right. Well, they all arrived in my room, and I tell you what, I've never heard people raise their voice so much to get God's attention. I don't know, honest, honestly, I don't know what the nursing staff thought, but I erased out of my sleepness, sleepy state out of the morphine I was on. I tell you what, because those voices vibrated in my soul. 
right? Three days later, I was still in hospital. I was in another, another four weeks. And John come to me and he said, Mike, I want you to understand something. This is not because you do not have enough faith or we do not have enough faith. And it's not because God's punishing you. I said, well, I'm glad you said that because I feel like someone's punishing me. I honestly did. No? He said, no, brother. This is what we call life. You had an accident and you fell that far. And that's going to stay with you for a long time. But he said, don't stop asking. Don't stop asking. And I haven't. To this day, I still ask. Right? But I also know that God knows best. Right? I also know that God knows best. God has provided doctors. Right? God has provided medicine. 1 Timothy 5.23 says to us, Paul writing to Timothy says, don't be afraid to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Now, he wasn't talking about having a party. What he was talking about was the fact that back then, they didn't have any medicines. But they used to use wine for a whole lot of things. And here's the interesting thing. The thing that causes us to become depressed is a chemical called serotonin, when we don't have enough of it. It's made in the lining of our gut. Right? Oh. Yeah. Okay. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Paul was understanding something and he was conveying it to Timothy. Now, of course, we also know that if you drink too much alcohol, it doesn't help depression. It actually increases it. Right? But a little bit of wine, what Paul was getting at, actually cleans out the gut and helps all those little probiotics in there do the right thing once it's cleaned out. God has also provided researchers, and we have a lot of research around that helps us understand what causes Depression, what causes mental illness, what causes people to suffer in life, okay? Things like trauma, adverse childhood, childhood experiences, maybe sexual abuse, maybe physical violence, maybe neglect, not enough emotional support when it was needed, just a cold, hard parent that says, rub it with a brick, tell someone who cares. Speak to the hand. Of course, none of you would say that. Right? Or, maybe the parent is struggling with their own illness and they haven't got the emotional capacity to connect or see or notice what's happening with their child. Not their fault. Not the child's fault. Just life. That's how it is. Right? No blaming anyone. We also know that chronic stress, such as Moving from house to house because you've got an ex-partner that has threatened to kill you. And then the next time you find out, he's just driven past your house. So you've got to grab your kids and run. Environmental factors. Not having 
much sun around. I was blessed to go up to Darwin back at the start of August. I'd had bronchial pneumonia for six weeks, had a whole stack of antibiotics, I was getting better, and the doctor said, look, if you've got a chance to get away, it might be a good opportunity. I thought, I'm going. <laughs> the truth was, my family wanted to throw a party for my 65th birthday, and I said, I'm not going to be around. So I took myself off for a holiday with my wife, she come with me, it was great. Didn't get under 27 degrees. The whole eight days were up there. It was marvellous. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> I never got over 37, but, you know, that was okay. Yeah. But it was great. So environmental factors can have a lot to do with how people feel, yeah. right? There's a thing called seasonal affective disorder, SAD, S-A-D, where people... Every year when it comes winter, the body starts to get depressed because the light, the sunlight is not giving them what they need. Right? Or they haven't got enough sunlight to get what they need. Emotional factors. If you're in a relationship with someone who is not loving you the way you need, then you're not able to love them the way they need, then that becomes depressing, for instance. Right? Then there's health issues. If your health is constantly struggling, I mean physical health, like diabetes, right, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, that causes you to get depressed, anxious, down in the dumps. If you don't get enough sleep, in 2009, I was diagnosed with apnea. And I got one of those snoring machines. I don't know why I call them snoring machines because they're not, they don't make a noise. <laughs> In fact, I used to take myself off to bed before my wife because I would get tired and she'd have to come in and see if I was actually breathing because she couldn't hear anything. And she said it was so different because before I could be out in the back paddock and still hear you. <laughs> right? So there's all those things. Finances, employment, safety. The poor people over in where the war is at the moment, not being able to feel safe, having their cortisol levels, their hypervigilance up here since the start of this year, that would wear their bodies down and their mental health. The truth is, it's not just prayer, it's prayer plus. Yeah. Faith without works is useless. We've got to put both together, right? The fourth myth is the belief that my community will not understand what my mental illness needs are, so I'm not saying nothing. Hang on, that's a double negative. I'm not saying anything. That's better, right? So, is that true? Think about how much is out there in the public arena these days with mental health education. There's psychoeducation everywhere. Every workplace has something on it. Every ad, but not every ad, every night when you watch, sit down and watch the telly after the news, there's some kind of ad putting something out about mental health awareness. Black, Black Dog Institute. What's the other one? Beyond Blue. 1-800-RESPECT um, for women in violence and children, men's line, kids line, women's line, suicide line, 1-800-RESPECT, as I said. And look, people 
might think, well, who's going to call them? You'd be surprised when people get desperate and they can't talk to their families, how many people will get on that phone? Because the person on the other end, they don't have to look them in the eye, they're not seen, but they can talk to them. Right? And the other thing is, one in four people suffer, remember? So if no one's going to understand, at least one in four people will. Or two in five. Take your pick, either one. Right? And even with treatment, some people have got to learn to live with their mental illness, like me. Right? If you don't say anything, you're expecting people to be mind readers. And my experience of human mind readers, not so good. Right? <laughs> not so good. Right? I've tried it in the room with people. It doesn't work. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Well, there's psychic lying too, but I wouldn't advise you to bring that. Okay, the fifth myth is that mental illness might disqualify me from any kind of ministry or leadership in the church. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> no, it didn't, sorry. I'm joking. Shouldn't joke about that. You see, this goes back to being related to sin or evil or the fact that this faith is not strong enough. In fact, in my experience working with people who have struggled with mental illness and are in ministry, they're much more compassionate, much more understanding and much more patient with people. And they're actually the kind of people that can say to the senior pastor, hey, just, just back off a bit, just go a bit easier. And we need that. Right? Leadership people need that. Because leadership people, they've got a vision, right? They're a bit like what Ross said about the Queen. I'm not saying Andrew, I'm just saying... Gen no, no, seriously, I'm just saying generally, leadership people have got a vision, right? And they're the people you want to... Oh, wow, look at his vision, it's fantastic. Let's follow him, right? And that, sometimes that vision can leave people in the wake. You know, that's why Jesus went back, left the 99 and went back for the other one. Right? Why? Because they're all following the leader. And occasionally some get left behind. And we as Christians need to be aware of that. Okay, so let's look at the encouragements. We've got five minutes. Okay? According to the clock. Right? But I'm going to actually just relax. I'm going to take my time. Four encouragements. Right? The first one is, and I want you to get this, you are not alone. Remember, one in four, two in five, you're not alone. And I've got to tell you, when I started taking that shame thing off and started saying to people, oh, I struggle with that, they went, what? You're kidding me. In fact, I remember saying this to one person and two days later he hung up and he said, hang on a minute, that makes sense because back in 1997 you were in Western Australia and you rang me up on Christmas Day out of the blue for no reason whatsoever other than to just... A, I don't know, because the call only lasted 30 seconds. And then he realised. I rang up because I needed to talk to somebody. And he went, oh, Mike, I'm so sorry. I said, I didn't judge you. It was Christmas Day. And I was struggling. You're not alone. Jesus on the cross. Remember when he cried out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
You know, God couldn't look at what had happened to his son. He couldn't look the fact that Jesus took all the sin of all the world, for all time, for all people, on him in that moment. God couldn't look at it. And he had to turn away. And Jesus felt it. I don't know if you ever remember being a child and you wanted your parent to see you. Do something like winning the grand final, hey? Can you imagine what it would be like winning the grand final and your parent wasn't there? Or even doing something at home, drawing and, hey, look. Oh. And the parent just says, I'm too busy. Not seen, right? You're not alone. As I said, the ABS is two in five. World Health Organization in 2021 put out a wellness survey from 2019 that said one in four people in the world, one in four, suffer from mental health disorders. Share your need to get care. It's really important, right? It's hard to step out, but when you do, the benefits are fantastic. Second encouragement, it's not your fault, right? It wasn't my fault that after 12 concussions playing football that the doctor said to me, you can't play this anymore. And this is going way back in the 70s, early 70s. You can't play anymore because you get one more knock on the head, you could kill yourself. What? No. I went back one more time. And I said to God, God, if you don't want me to play anymore, knock me out. I got best on ground, but I didn't find that out until I woke up in the hospital. (laughs) Four minutes before the end of the game. Bow. Down I went. Three days later I woke up. At the time I was attending trade school at the SMB, I went back to work and I couldn't work, but... The boss said, well, just go and do your trade school. So I went and did trade school. I was standing at the top of the steps in a break. I don't know if you're familiar with the steps at the back of the, what used to be the carpentry building. Massive big line of steps. I can remember standing there in the sun looking at the stairs going, wow, it's a long way down. And that's all I remember. And two days later, I woke up in the hospital. And as a consequence of that, now, having gone and seen doctors and spoken to them, they're suspecting I've got what's called CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. In, I can't pronounce it. Encephalopathy, which is problems in the brain that cause little bleeds. And it changes your mood just like that without anything happening. It just does, right? And when it happens, I could be with my grandchildren and I've got to take myself out of the room into somewhere quiet and try and calm my body because my nervous system starts agitating. And I've got to take responsibility for it because it's not their fault, not my fault. It's not their fault. It's happening in my body, not theirs. It's not me to get angry or say, get away, leave me alone. I need it. I just indicate to my wife, and off I go, right? 
living with it, right? It's not my fault. And, but how do I know it's not my fault? Remember what Augustine said? <laughs> it's God punishing you. You've got unconfessed sin in your life somewhere. Ha <laughs> ha! Gotcha! No. Do you remember that Jesus actually died on the cross over 2,000 years ago? And just correct me if I'm wrong here, but when Jesus died on the cross, he died for my sin. I don't know about yours, I'm not talking about you, right? But he died for my sin. But as, who was it said before? Mel? No. Andrew? Well, it might have been Ross. Jesus, Ross, for God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In 1 John 2.2 2, he says, we have an advocate, one who represents us to the Father on our behalf, but not only ours, but on the whole world. Whoa. So you know what? I've come to the understanding that when Jesus died on the cross for all sin, for all people, for all time, and then he went on to say, when he bowed his head at the end, it is finished. And that word used there, tetelestai, is used one more time in the New Testament in the book of Colossians. And you know what it means? A lot of people think that when Jesus said, oh, it's finished, oh, my life's finished, oh my God. Tetelestai means no more debt to pay. No more debt to pay. For you, for me, for all those people out there, whether they've got mental health issues or not, it doesn't matter. God has made a way for them to have relationship with him. And whether it's mental illness or not, that's not going to get in the way because God has made a way. Right? The third encouragement is God sees you and he's with you. You know what I mean by God sees you? I don't know, you can go into a room... And everyone sees you, but you just feel like you're alone. You know that? You can be in a relationship and go home and speak to your partner and they can go, oh, hi. And you know they've seen you, but they don't see you because they don't feel what's going on with you. And maybe there's stuff going on for them too and that's blocking, but sometimes they don't see you. Right? When I come home from work the other night, I walked in the door I only took two steps and I stopped and leant on the wall like this and my wife said, you're not okay, are you? She didn't have to hear me say anything. She knew. She saw me. Well, you know what? God sees you too. Yeah. Forget Bette Midler is in the distance somewhere, right? Yeah, he's watching, but he's there. He's there with you. He's here yeah. with us now. And he sees you, and he feels you, and he understands you. And that's why he says in Hebrews, come to me with boldness, with confidence, because you know what? I know exactly how you feel. And I'm not judging you. But you come to me, and I'll help you in your time of need. Right? He sent his Holy Spirit to be an interceder for us. In Romans 8 we read, and it says there that when we don't have the words to speak because sometimes we just don't want to say what we feel. It wouldn't be too honouring to say what I feel sometimes. But you know what? The Holy Spirit takes that and presents that to God and he hears my heart. And whether it's my pain 
your pain or it's the pain I feel for my grandkids. The Holy Spirit takes it and makes it presentable to the Most High God. And that doesn't mean that God comes and says, oh, that's all right, I'll fix all that stuff for you. Bang, (laughs) there you go. All good? No. But what God does do is says, in that still, small voice, not in the thunder, not in the lightning, not in the thundering rain, but in that still, small voice, he says, I see you. I got your back. You can be there for them. Even with your struggle, you can be there with them. My 17-year-old grandson back in April, 7.35 at night, his mum had just come home from work. She's a paramedic nurse. She's sitting with one of the other staff, writing up their notes, ready to close off the books on the computer. And all of a sudden... Michelle hears his thud. He was the only other person in the house. So she walks down the hallway and says, Riley? She walks around the corner and here he is, face up, eyes, cardiac rest. Thank God she's a paramedic. She worked on him for four minutes. The other girl come down and took over. The Ambos, Fiery's come, they worked on him. Paddles on him twice. Once again on the way in the hospital, in the back of the Ambos. He was in hospital for four weeks. Eventually, after ten days, they found him a bed in Melbourne, because they can't do heart stuff down here. And to have a defibrillator put in. Seventeen. It's a genetic disorder. So all the males in the family have had to go and get tested and we've got all these regimes we've got to follow now because we don't want the same thing happening. I'm 65. Anyway, when he came out of the hospital, he said to me, Pa, I've been thinking about this because I spent a lot of time with him, talking to him, went down to see him a few times in the Royal Melbourne. And he said to me, I've been doing some deep thinking, Pa. He said, I don't know why this has happened and why God's allowed this to happen, but one thing I do know, he said, the average age of males in Australia when they pass away is round about 80. So he said, I'm not very good at maths, but I've worked this one out. I've got 15 years with you left. And I want to get the best out of you. Well, if I wasn't depressed before, I tell you what, that hit me right between the eyes. Because I went, what? 15? What are you talking about? And I went, his maths isn't that bad after all. Right? But I heard his heart. Right? I heard his heart and I saw him. And I said to him, mate, I hear you. Right? And we're spending a lot of time together, as we did before anyway. But it's much more valuable now. Right? God hears our words, our pain. He's near the brokenhearted. He lights up in our darkness. We sang about that. God's amazing putting all this stuff together, mate. Right? He lifts us up, Psalm 40 says. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And he lifted, my, lifted me up, put my feet up out of the miry clay onto a solid rock. Now that doesn't mean that person doesn't slip again. Right? But God is there and picks him up. 
Right? He wants us to come boldly. And the last one, God's word speaks to us. Right? One of the things that's really important for me as a Christian, working with other Christians, and even when I'm working with people who aren't Christian, even though they don't realise it, I use God's word to speak to them. I don't quote scripture to them, but I say things out of the word of God to them, and it touches them. You know why? Because they're made in the image of God. I want to see their image as, that's God's image, they just don't know it yet. They're broken, they're damaged, just like me, and I need God's comfort in my life with his word. It doesn't matter whether I'm quoting a verse, or I can remember where the verse is. Right? I know it comes from my heart. And God takes that, remember what we said? And intercedes. And God's spirit does the rest. Right? Look, I just want to finish by saying this. What I've learnt through my life is God's grace is sufficient. doesn't take the pain away all the time. But it is sufficient. And it's amazing that even when we own our struggle how much that can help people. We don't have to talk about it all the time. I don't talk about it all the time. But when I do, I know that God uses it and touches people. Right? I just want to finish by reading these words from Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit out of the mud and the mire and he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand and he put a new song in my mouth a hymn of praise to our God many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him and I pray that can be your story too thank you Andrew Breathe that in. Why don't we do that as we pray? If you close your eyes. Let's just breathe in that moment, that truth. One of the most valuable things that Mel and I have ever done um, is learning to be uh, open, honest, vulnerable. To put shame aside, one of the most wonderful things beneficial things that we've ever done is we began and built a relationship with Mike and asked him to speak about things like this in church because this is where the rubber hits the road so when I say breathe this in because I I stir the pot, I like that I had one of my Facebook moments with someone that I'd love to gangster slap And I had to remind them, whether they took it, took it on board or not, that it's okay for a Christian not to be okay. That it's okay for us, because life is full of ebbs and flows, ups and downs. And whether we carry it until eternity, <laughs> until we get home, or whether God chooses to heal us, as Mike said so perfectly, he knows best. Amen?
So, Father, in this space and place, I pray that you would continue to cultivate hearts that are soft, God, for each and every one of us. I think one of his slides said, um, share the need for our care. Lord, may we be a people that Lord, can put the mask aside, put the shame aside, have people around us, Lord, where we can share our need for care. I thank you, Lord, that you've designed us in a way that we can come alongside each other, that we can support each other, that we can uplift and uphold each other. I thank you, Lord, that we do that in prayer. I thank you that we do that as we journey. I thank you that we do that as we offer a shoulder, God. I thank you, Lord, that we can be your hands and feet extended. But, Lord God, let us also be the people that will be the ones to raise our hand and say, hey, I just... I need your ear. I need some help. <laughs> I need some advice. I need you. Father, I thank you that you've never left us or forsaken us. I thank you that you are there. And Lord, even when we have no strength left, Lord, you're still there to carry us. And God, it's in these moments that we realize how dear we are to you. And Lord, regardless of our... It's not inefficiency. God, we're not perfect. And I thank you that in our imperfection, you still love us perfectly. And so God, take these words and grow us, mold us, shape us more and more into the image of your son. Continue to bless Mike. Lord, his work, his family, his extended family. God, Lord, grow him in his faith. Extend, Lord, the, the tent poles of God, all of his belief that, Lord... <laughs> In these 15 years, Lord, that he was reminded of, God, that he would experience more, more of you in that time than what he has already in 65. May you grow him such a way. We thank you for his wisdom. And we do pray, Lord, that he will take, Lord, this message, God, and many others, Lord, not just to this church, but the greater church, that we may actually see the Christian church rise up in all of its glory. Father, not because we're perfect, but because we're an imperfect human with a loving relationship with a perfect God. And so, God, this day we give you all the glory. We give you just all the praise. We exalt you. We tell you that we love you and we thank you. And everybody said, Amen. 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 So.